0: Today's scripture reading is in Job 1, 6 to 22. Job 1, 6 to 22. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan. Also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the, Lord, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? When Satan answered the Lord and said, Did Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? He have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. Have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Dob and said, The oxen were plowing and donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabeans fell upon them, and took them, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, and I alone have escaped to tell, you, to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped, and said, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return." The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And away in away the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God wrong. This is the word of the Lord.
1: always a real blessing to get this opportunity and, and I thank you guys for giving it to me. Um, I want to thank Caleb Corbett here for, for reading the scripture this morning. His, his first time in, in, a, in a pretty massive chunk and he did a really good job with it. So thanks Caleb, he did great. And Dave, welcome back. It's good to see you. You don't look like you got out in the sun that much down in New Mexico. So we got a lot of ground to cover because actually um, we're going to be going all the way through chapter 2, verse 10 in, in Job, starting in the 6th verse in chapter 1. So it's quite a chunk. Before we get any further, there's a couple things I want to tell you about the outline. The first thing is the, uh, the title is actually not Friendly Fire. That was the first working title. Uh, but it is actually the Great Resignation. That's the name of the sermon, the Great Resignation. And then hopefully that will make sense. Also, I want to give you the fill-ins now because every time I forget. And then you guys can't concentrate on anything else because you're like, What did you get? What was, what's the third, third one? So... so. It's the heavenly council, and that is the uh, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, council, the heavenly council. And then it's then it's Job's righteousness. Then the accuser's challenge. Am I going too fast? And, jo- and Job's gin. And then. The challenge intensified. And then finally, Job's resignation. There, we got that out of the way. In verses 8 to 12 in this first chapter, what we, what we get to see is a conference that God has called for his messengers, the sons of God, his, his angels. And they're there to report on their various missions. So I picture it like a scene from a, a World War II movie, you know, where they got the map, the battle, the world map laid out in front of them, and they're planning strategies. Um, that might seem odd, right? God having a, a meeting, getting reports from people questions and and that the meeting includes Satan it seems at first glance that that might challenge God's sovereignty right He's, he's got all these people he's hearing back from so what do we make of that well Martin Luther called Satan God's Satan pointing to the fact that, that he uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. John Calvin is also helpful in untying this knot. In the Institutes, he describes Satan as the instrument of God's wrath who bends of himself there and thither at his beck and command to execute his just judgments. And we look, we look at Job's story in, in verse 17 for instance. For instance. Where the Chaldean marauders steal Job's camels and all the servants, we see three different, three different goals, three different actors in that scene. That scene, with God, in His act of permitting Satan to afflict Job, and that's to build endurance in him, um, a deeper faith in him, and and like by extension, for us. Then we have Satan, who has a completely different goal in mind, and that's to see Job fail, to tear down his faith. And then we see the Chaldeans, well, they're on a camel raid, right? So God uses those three different actors in different ways. Satan can only act as God permits. He's only given so much Power And that power ultimately is from the primary cause, which is God, Satan, and human actors being secondary causes. That's a really important doctrine to understand as we look at this, secondary causes. Because otherwise you could could start thinking, well, it looks like God is the author of evil, but he's not. Again, just as we looked at there in verse 17, God's, God's primary cause is always for good. The secondary cause is the actors do evil. You think about Genesis 50-20, right, with uh, jo- Joseph speaking to his brothers and telling them, you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Right. So you have to keep this perspective in mind as we look at this. It's a great this, uh the doctrine, the doctrine of its uh, secondary causes. It's a really good study that we could spend a long time on, but we don't have a long time, so we're going to just move on to Job's Righteous. We know that, that God takes special interest in, in the accuser. He's the only one that gets interviewed in this, in this section of Scripture, and he, asks, he asks, "What you up to?" And you can almost sense the snarkiness in in Satan's answer here when he says, "From going to and fro on fro on the, from walking up and down on it." Just note how succinct that response is. He doesn't offer any details on his travelings. It kind of reminds me of like when, when 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 we'll say how was this work today and my answer is and you went you wives know this right what's the answer good yeah <laughs> fine good or you ask your your student student how was school today good well so satan didn't give any any details but we know what he was up to right Because what what does he prowls around like like a lion seeking whom he may devour? God then, and and this is a a scene where, again, we're reminded that we get get to see this scene, but Job doesn't because if Job did, he'd like, leave me out of it. But so God says, have you considered my, my servant Job? He's blameless. He's upright. Fears God, turns from evil. He's truly a righteous, Job is, and in every way. can't discount that. Job is the most righteous, he's the pinnacle at the time, the one that God points to. Now, that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's, there's a lot of people. He says, Job, my servant, he's aimless. He's upright. He's righteous. He has no equal. Job is a pious man. Now, there's a word we don't use much today, right? Pious or piety. Piety. But I think we need to revive it. When we hear that word pious or piety, you're probably picturing the, the, the robed clergyman with his hands folded, folded, waxy smile, going around and seeing everything. And, or any other thing that you, you might be thinking of. But those images are not what I'm saying when I say we should revive the word pious but but the real meaning which is to be consistently reverent and worshipful in every every day of life we do good here at being pious but it's not cold it's not emotionless rote obedience but a deep ven- venerate god emanating from a deep foundational understanding of who he really is we modern enlightened Christians have put such an emphasis on authenticity, on being real, and the result is that we have to a large degree camouflaged ourselves so well well, that we've done really well with the world around us, but hey, we're being real. Maybe, maybe we need to recalibrate our goals. And rather than n- nudging against the, the worldly line by being real and authentic, we need to bring a new reality to bear on our lives. We want to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. This, this is what we hear in the passage. Have you considered my servant Job? Right now, let's look at the accuser's challenge. Once God introduced Job in the conversation, Satan shows his hand. He def- definitely considered Job as he says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Now, when I hear that, my mind jumps to Psalm one thirty nine. Maybe he hems me in beside and before. It's one of those passages that's Psalm one thirty nine that we hold on to for comfort. It is. It's like a warm blanket, right? It just it holds you in. You recognize that that God is is there you don't see him but he's he's right there he's he's got you, got you hemmed in protected you know surely you've either prayed this yourself or you've definitely heard it prayed for a hedge of protection right i got to admit right that that just made it just seems squishy to me It just made me feel a little uncomfortable, like just, uh, I don't don't know. Is this right? Well, as we see in Job, the hedge of protection, this is what Satan was complaining about, that God's put this hedge of protection around him so so Satan can't get at him. So what they did back in those days, probably still doing in some places, they'd plant these thorny hedges and thickets, around their boundaries to keep out the dangerous animals that were looking to make a meal of them. Couldn't get through that hedge so they'd leave and go to some easier, look for some some easier, but that's again what Satan's complaining about. He set protection around Job so that everything he puts his hand to flourishes and the accuser can't get at him. Now he issues Satan. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now that challenge might at first seem to be directed at Job. I mean it is, but it's also an attack. It's like a flank, an attack from the attack from the on God's character and his ultimate value that's always what satan's attacks are they might they're they're at you directly indirectly directly on god's goodness on god's value is he worth worshiping really if you take everything from job then is he going to worship you So, God says, your terms are acceptable. He allows him, allows Satan to touch everything that Job has short of his life, short of his actual physical person. Now we look at Job's religion. Verses 13 to 19 of the first chapter, the scene shifts back and realize that we're looking, we're looking at scenes, right? We go from a heavenly, an earthly scene to a heavenly scene back to an earthly scene. The earthly scene, Job is. Job know, knows heavenly scene he's, he's not privy to. Just keep that in mind all the time as you read through Job, as you think through it, that here's a guy that this has just happened to. So we see this scene, and all of a sudden, in quick succession, everything in Job's life is wiped out. Apparently, it's a day of celebration among Job's family when a messenger comes to Job telling him of the Sabaeans plundering his oxen and donkeys, killing all all the servants, but the one thing. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then, boom, we hear three times while he was yet speaking, there came another to tell Job of the next. It's alternating between human actors, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, and acts of God, which is a great, great thunder, lightning storm that burns up, burns up the livestock and the tornado or whatever it is, the strong wind that caves the house in, killing all his children. God had given the power to Satan to do these things, again, as a secondary cause. Now put yourself in, in Job for a minute. In the time that it took us to read that passage, those verses, those six verses, that's the time it took for Job's livelihood, his family, to be wiped out. Boom, 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 boom. Nobody's ever experienced that except him. And it's interesting, you know, that hyperbole, you you might think think that the hyperbole, you might think that when God is presenting Job as the most righteous that he's being hyperbolic, but I don't believe he is. I believe that's intentional that, no, this is happening to to the best, to the pinnacle, to the top, to the most righteous. And, And what's happening to him? The worst possible attack anyone could ever, ever even fathom or imagine. I mean, how do you imagine that? All he's left with after this brief interlude, this brief time, is his wife and four servants, I guess. No time to react to one disaster before news of the next one came. Now, as you you think of this, one of the thoughts you might be having is, what about the 10 children? 10 children all at once. That's awful collateral damage. Gone in the blink of an eye. It's unsettling. And you know, it's meant to be unsettling. You're, you're, you're meant to think like this. You're meant to be confused and a little angry and wrestling with what's happening? What's God doing here? That feeling, that feeling is empathy. That's real empathy. And empathy is is putting yourself right there with a the person, right? As job suffers, you're suffering. You're going through it with him. You're same questions that Job is asking. Sympathy's great, Sympathy's wonderful, but it's a step removed. If it's, I'm sorry for what you're going through, I'm sorry for what you what you're going with, with the underlying and not ever said. But I'm glad I'm not going through it. The empathy is, no, no, I'll go through this with you. So directly after this happens, what does Job do? He rose. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground. And he worshipped. Now that's amazing. That is truly amazing. The fact that that's the first thing he does is testimony of well-founded faith and complete trust in in his God. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I used the word religion intentionally in this section. It's another one of those words that, like piety, has gotten bad press in recent years, and I think wrongly so. It's also a word that describes what we're seeing in Job. The definition definition of it is uh, the belief in and reverence for a supernatural power or powers regarded as creating and governing the universe and a particular variety of such belief, especially when organized into a system of doctrine and practice. I don't know when the trend started, if I was to guess, I'd say probably the 70s, 70s, during this movement, but, but you've heard this said, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Maybe you've said it yourself. I, I probably at some point in time, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, looking at our definition you see, that's not really true. A Relationship is, de- is definitely that. You definitely have to have relationship. We can't throw out religion. We get together here week after week, sometimes multiple times a week. We look into God's word. We hear it preached. We're building our doctrine and our faith, and it's getting firmed up and we're getting a deeper understanding there's certain th- things that do um, week in and week out. Without those things, with just a relationship, a person, person's going to be navigating a rudderless boat. Just going whichever way that they may feel. And you know Christians, or people that would would check that box on a questionnaire and you know they'll like that. And, and often their lives prove the whole it's a relationship statement. Their faith is frequently in an anemic if it's truly faith at all. Some things you might hear from a from person that rejects religion for the sake of a relationship I don't need a church. I worship God in the, in the forest when I'm hunting. Or God on the golf course. Or some other place. Well, I mean, you can. You definitely can. If you're a Christian, you should worship God everywhere, right? But the, the people that are saying this probably aren't. Probably aren't. At least, not the one true God. You might also hear this. I, I don't think and really that's where they should stop, because it's always followed up with, I don't think God would want me to be unhappy. I don't, think, I don't think God would fill in the blanks. It's used to justify almost any manner of sin that a person is prone to and wants to do, they don't think God would want them to be unhappy. Well, Job says, uh, I'd like a word. So as hard as it might be, when you encounter these kind of folks, and we all know them, we're related to them, right? Do your best to do some Correcting and that thinking that's a wide open door because you know uh, Paul gives Timothy this advice he says god may perhaps perhaps grant the repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the, the devil after being captured by him to do his will that's a that section of scripture is is, is, a, is a great section of scripture to encourage us uh, to correct, to correct wrong thinking because it doesn't go in a good direction. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung says this, if religion is characterized by doctrine, commands, rituals, and structure, then Jesus is not your go-to guy for hating religion. I mean, Jesus himself, himself said, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments said that in John 1415. and that sure so- sounds like religion. So if you've used that phrase about relationship and not a religion, I'm going to recommend that you stop. We're not doing Jesus any favors by turning him into our buddy, the big guy, or a pilot. if you still want to continue using it after listening to what I've just said, to quote John, John McCarthy, I can't even. <laughs> Not that John McCarthy. There was a different John. But getting back to Job, what was he showing about us about his, his religion, his faith and belief, by what he did immediately after receiving such devastating news? As we consider Job's Job situation, feel the excruciating anguish he was experiencing. What do we see him do? He's torn his robe as if he could rip out his heart. He's shaved, shaved his head, the symbol of mourning at that time, and some suggest that it's actually tearing out your hair. It's prob- probably identif- identification of the dead. Quoting from Christopher Ashe's great book, Job, the Wisdom of the Cross, And then he falls on the ground, not yet crushed, crushed by sins, but in worship of the God he knows and loves. Quietly, with dignity and restraint, Job worships. And then he speaks. Naked I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the Lord. The preacher says something very similar in Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go, go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Job knows that eventually he'll die. and he'll take nothing away. It's almost as if he's died today. He understands all his possessions and all his children were gifts from the Lord. By the, by the godness of God, he gives, and it's therefore entirely his prerogative to take away as he sees fit and when he chooses. Part of God being God. End quote. Let's take a lesson from Job here. This man is the one God pointed to as the the pinnacle, the template, what we're to emulate. God, the one who knows a person's thoughts, hears every word that's spoken, even when you're alone. See, action calls Job blameless and upright. Can we not strive for that? Striving, pressing on, putting forth effort, exerting. As a Christian, these are not activities that are antithetical to grace. Yes, we know that we will never achieve sinless perfection and that our works don't earn us grace. And we have to be careful not to veer off in a legalistic or fundamentalistic direction While we know that Christ's blood blood covered believer, exchanging our sin and death, that we earned from it for his righteousness and eternal life, but in no way does that give us license to, to lay down weapons and coast into heaven. In fact, it motivates us to emulate Christ. And as you and I make true Christian piety our goal, for the glory of God's efforts will see results with the help of the Holy Spirit. My grandson, Max, and I were watching an old rerun of Let's Make a Deal, right, From the old one. He loves doing this. He gets the biggest kick out of it. It's the old clothes and the hairstyles and the prizes that they gave out. So we're watching this show, and one contestant won a pretty nice prize, prize. but but has happened in that show, well, he was offered a trade for what's behind the curtain, now Max is sitting there like, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. <laughs> not realizing that the, the person actually yelling at is probably dead now, <laughs> he's not here today, so I can say these things. But of course, the man who was dressed like either Tarzan or Fred Flintstone, I couldn't really tell the difference. He chose the curtain. And of course, when the curtain was opened, zonk, honk. Max was perplexed. He's like, why would he do that? He already had that cool hi fi system with the AM, FM radio, A track, A track tape, and phonograph. And a beautiful mahogany cabinet. (laughs) Why would anyone trade that? Well, you know, considering our our subject matter, you guys are really wondering what I'm up to. And that is a pretty feeble analogy I grant you. Um, But I hope you'll get the connection. The first thing that needs to happen in our quest for piety is fully recognize that the treasures that are ours already in Christ and the promised future blessings are far better than any transitory, temporary thing that we can get from this world. Job is recognizing this as he falls to the ground and worse after everything's been wiped away. What does he have left? He still had his God. He worshipped. Because of his robust religion, because of his strong faith, he worshipped the God who gave and took away. Now on to the challenge intensified. I'm going to reread chapter 2 through verse 10. Again, then there was a day when the sons of God came present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Satan, have you considered my servant, Bob, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds holds fast, although you incited me against him to to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered to the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat and sat in the ass. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So our our scene has shifted back to heaven on another day. We don't really know how long the span of time was from the first time that Job was afflicted with all of his possessions and his livelihood and his family being wiped out to this point, but we don't do know that Job and his wife are still in the throes of grief. They're sitting in an ash heap. The scene starts out the same as the first one, verbatim, up until that point where where God is he still holds fast his integrity. Oh, you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. The last part of that, sta- that statement made you squirm a little. Without reason, without reason, was God duped by Satan? No. We again look at that; those secondary causes. It would appear to the accuser and certainly to Job and his wife that all but all befell him was done for no good reason. Somehow, Job held fast his integrity even though he could see no reason for all this hap- happening. The accuser answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all the man has he'll give for his life, but stretch out your hand against him. Uh, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. A lot of differing opinions on what that skin for skin means. So you can take what I'm about to tell you for you for what it's worth. But the way that I see it is Satan, as the accuser, is saying, we will do anything. They'll trade anything for their life. They'll even let you harm their children, kill their children. As long as you don't touch them, as long as they're safe, as hard as it is to them, they're going to exchange that skin for skin. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. What Satan is suggesting there. Because I think probably any parent in here would definitely exchange their lives for their children. But I don't think Satan, this this is like I'm on on shake around here so, you know, get ready ready. back there, John. I don't think Satan understands sacrifice. Right? It's a self creature That's God's power, he wants to harm anything that falls under God's realm. So sacrifice is foreign to His way of thinking. where do we see the, the ultimate sacrifice? right? We see it on the cross. We see the, and we talk about the victory cross because it was a victory. It was victory over. Satan it was a victory over death. And while we were still sinners. We were still sinners. Christ died for us. Think about that, you. So Satan up the ante. Now he's got permission to strike Job's body short of killing him, killing him completely. And as soon as God had said meeting adjourned, in effect. I don't know if he's Robert's Rules of Order guy. But as soon as he adjourned the meeting, Satan was gone to afflict Job with painful, loathsome sores from the bottom of his feet feet, to the top of his head. And that is the last we hear from Satan. Important note, maybe you already knew this, but you go through all 42 chapters of Job, and you will never find Job one single t- time blaming Satan, blaming the accuser for anything that happened to him. Not once. Now, that's a lesson for us, too. Rec- recognize Job knew who the sovereign was, Job knew his God was ultimately in control, though he didn't understand that. He wasn't going to give Satan any credence. So where where did Satan find Job um, and his wife? Well, they were sitting in an ash heap, which was most likely the burning dump outside town where, where the townspeople would bring all their garbage and junk and excrement and dump it and it constantly burned Jesus talked about it a lie called it Gehenna which was was to to remind them of hell so quite appropriate that this is where you find Job and his wife now sitting in burning an excrement in a dump after he's lost everything and now he's Afflicted with loathsome sores. My goodness, how terrible! I mean, he reaches for broken pottery. That's again kind of an indicator that he's in the dump. That's where broken pottery is. reaches for reaches for a piece of pottery. He's just scraping himself, just trying to get a little relief. And 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 then the one thing that he's been left with, the one thing he's been left with. After everything's been wiped out, his wife of many years. She says to Job, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now that's just not an errant statement. Think back to what Satan was hoping that Job was going to do. What did he, what did Satan want to see Job do? Curse God to his face. That's what his wife's just asking him to do. Wow. So what's she doing? She's playing the devil's advocate, right? Now here's a little trivia for you about that. (laughs) that phrase, because I love this stuff, the devil's advocate was actually uh, an official position in the Roman Catholic Church. It might still be today. And it was in Latin, the advocatus diaboli. But the role of the devil's advocate in the Roman Catholic ch- Church was to... Um, against the canonization, to argue against the canonization, the sainthood of a candidate. They were supposed to turn over every rock and find anything that was wrong in this person's character. Uh, so, so they were the devil's, devil's advocate. So, now you know. So on to my final point here, Job's resignation. The serpent duped Eve, so it seems that he did to Job's wife, she wasn't aware of it. Now I think, I think that be a more charitable way to look at Job's wife's statement here. Consider that up to this point of Job's physical body being attacked, she 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 didn't same losses. The same losses. She lost all her family. She lost her livelihood, her positions, her, her possessions. She lost it too. She was, she was sitting there in the ash heap with Job. They were liter- literally down in the dumps together. Now this man, her husband, who she knew blameless and upright, he hadn't changed his attitude or his actions. He's given over, over now to horrible, unbelievable pain and suffering. All she can do, all she can do, and you know this if you watch someone suffer, all you can do is sit there and watch. This man that raised her children with her, this man that was a pillar of the community, who had wealth beyond measure, who provided so, so well family, now barely recognizable. Perhaps she just couldn't stand to watch him suffer anymore and believed that if only he would curse God who had afflicted them, his suffering would end. Love is a powerful force. Maybe that was the impetus Maybe not. In any case Job doesn't seem to fly off the handle about it. He doesn't actually call her foolish or a fool. He just compares her to compares he said to something that the foolish women, the foolish women that don't know the one true God would say. Shall we we receive? Good from God, and shall we not receive not receive evil? He says, Job's resigned himself to the providence of God. Does he like it? No. Does he understand it? No. Can he make any sense of it at all? No. All that's left for him to do is. All that's left is resignation. Now, there's another one of those words. I've given a couple already, but this is another one. Another one of those that I think we need to recapture. When you think of resignation, right? It's usually something negative. It means you're just giving up. It's not a positive attribute at all. It's it means you're giving up. Don't fight against that cancer. Fight, fight, fight. No. Resignation. We don't like to see people resign in themselves. But I think we need to look at it from a different angle. There are things that have happened to you and to me or are happening or things that happen that you're not going to make any sense of. And all we can muster, which is all that Job could muster as we progress through this book, is the question, why? That's where Job gets to. Just, why? And just then we don't get an answer. And that's exactly where resignation comes in. We expend our time in brain power and prayers searching for answers. Reasons why this this or that happened, and often often wind up solace for our efforts We may find some tangential purpose which may or may not have anything to do with the situation in actuality And we're and we're still hearing. Certainly there's a time for introspection To see if we are in fact receiving discipline from the Lord because as he does do that I suggest that he's, not, that he's not going to continue guessing and guessing. If it's discipline, you will know. But after coming up empty on that front, I believe the story shows us that if we can learn the God-honoring perspective of resignation, we'll find that our faith and trust is more robust that our faith is firmer than it would be if we continue, continue to hunt for an answer to unscrew the inscrutable. Because when we practice resignation, we're not resigning ourselves to the dark void. We're resigning ourselves to a sovereign God who loves us and will never forsake us. We're trusting him with the result. We're trusting him. When things don't make sense, Now, there's another resignation, an even greater resignation. You believers, I want you to hearken back in your history to the time of your of yourself, to that time when Jesus Christ invaded your life, when that, that hound of heaven that was nipping at your heels finally caught you. Did you bargain with him? Did you bargain with him? Did you have anything at all to offer him for this new life that he was offering you? All you could give him was your dirty old one, your sin. So what did you do? Resignation. Resignation. Surrender. Surrender. For you. Was that resignation to his grace and mercy not the m- most glorious event that's ever happened to you in your life? Friends, don't under- underestimate the liberating power of resignation to an all powerful, sovereign, loving God. Ex- except ways are very much higher than our ways. I want to close now by reading an old, familiar hymn. O oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, That in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O oh, light the that follow my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee, my heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze, its day may brighter, fairer, be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn, tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay, in dust, life's glory, buried dead. And from the ground, there blossoms red. Life shall endless be.